Is it on? Hooray! Yes, it's on. Lovely. Excellent. Good. Hello and welcome to episode 8 of Have You Seen? I, as always, am your humble servant, Kieran Lefort, and live via satellite from the other end of the table is Tom Webb. Hello. Hey. Um, what, are we, what are we going to talk about today? Um, well, we've got to review the films from last week, which were The Social Network and Dirty Harry. Okay, okay. Um, but before we do that, um, we've had some tweets from listeners. Good Lord. Uh, yeah, and actually, uh, people are coming back to us with reviews of previous films we've seen. Um... So one of the first ones we got is uh, at Kyle W. Buxton, and uh, he watched Lost in La Mancha. The tweet reads, Feeling very sorry for Terry Gilliam after watching Lost in La Mancha. Am I meant to? Thanks, HYS Podcast, for putting me onto this. So it looks like he enjoyed that one. Hooray. Um, and also, Phil Austin has tweeted us as well. Uh, really liked Shall We Dance? It wasn't spectacular or filled with clever visual moments. It was just funny, warm, tender little film. Oh, so I think he enjoyed that. I also got a message from my Phil Jones, from my friend Phil Jones, not my Phil Jones, not my personal Phil Jones, <laughs> your my very friend. own Phil Jones. Yeah, 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 everybody should have one. Yeah. Uh, my friend Phil Jones, who uh, bought Lost in La Mancha on the strength of our podcast about it. Oh, fantastic! That's great news. Uh, so uh, I shall, uh, I shall try and pro- Nicola Webb F one, which happens to be my wife, uh, and she says uh, this is about uh, Dirty Harry and the Social Network. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mrs. Webb loves them both. I always forget how long Dirty Harry is, though. Okay. So, uh, some my mind immediately there. went to innuendo, and <laughs> this is this is a, a clean, safe family environment. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, we also had a, a longer review sent in uh, uh, of the Social Network uh, from Adam Stevens, who says, "Loving the podcast, guys." With three S's. Right. <laughs> Discussing The Social Network, it's a slicker movie as they come, although it's still difficult to see as Jesse Eisenberg as anyone other than Jesse Eisenberg. But hey, if it works for Robert De Niro. <laughs> Plus, it's hard to criticise his razor-sharp deposition banter with the condescending lawyers, no matter how much of that was Sorkin's incredible script. You don't often get to see members of the Bar Association so thoroughly emasculated. <laughs> it's great to see David Fincher using his powers for good and exploding the careers of Garfield, that's Andrew Garfield, Hammer, yeah. Army Hammer, and the surprisingly effective Justin Timberlake. Right. He'd be doing low-budget action movies with Ice-T by now, if not for this. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Lastly, I wanted to mention Trent Reznor's score, uh, which I didn't actually touch on last week, really. No, no. In fact, I didn't, I didn't really pick up on that until I was reading something about it. So. Okay, okay. Anyway, lastly, I wanted to mention Trent Reznor's score, he says, which did more to flavour the film than any orange and or teal filters ever could. But then Academy Awards tend to speak for themselves, unless you're Marissa Tomei. <laughs> So that's the Adam Stevens review of uh, The Social Network. Excellent. Um, well, after that, shall we go into my thoughts? Do you want to recap it quickly before I do that? It's a slightly fictionalised version of the story of the creation of Facebook. Perfect. There we okay. go. Okay. And seeing as uh, the people that this is about seem to be a particularly litigious bunch, I think I should start by saying anything I say now is talking specifically in regards to the film... <laughs> And those people as characters and not in real life. You hear that, lawyers? You <laughs> exactly. hear that? I'm, uh, you know, if it's one thing I learned from this film, cover yourself. <laughs> yes. Um, it, it does seem to be an absolute dream team of Fincher and Aaron Sorkin. Yes. Um, we spoke about this last week. And not only that, the one thing that um, 
wasn't in that equation as a cast. And I thought the performances and the casting were as top-notch as David Fincher and Aaron Sorkin as a creative team. Um, I thought Jesse Eisenberg was particularly good. And I, I do take on board Adam's point about he's always quite similar and always he's always Jesse Eisenberg. Yeah. But he's he is that character. That's why I said last week, he's perfectly cast as the nerdy absolutely. Jew who talks too fast. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was definitely surprised by Andrew Garfield. I thought he was really good. Mm. More surprised by Justin Timberlake. Um, I suspect he's got a touch of the Ben Affleck's about him in that if he's got a really, really good director kind of really drawing a performance out of him, he can actually be pretty good. Um, but if he's with a weaker director, he'd probably just do it by numbers. The moment that kind of turned my opinion on Justin Timberlake is mm-hmm. there's a scene at the end in the big uh, Facebook California yes. offices yeah, yeah. Uh, where Andrew Garfield's Eduardo Severin mm-hmm. comes back uh, and effectively he's being pushed out of the company he's being yeah. asked to sign a contract that takes his shares down to almost nothing yeah, yeah. Uh, and Timberlake's being a cocky tit yes. uh, and they kind of have a little confrontation uh, and uh, Garfield kind of makes to punch him yeah yeah, kind of yeah, it's ju- yeah, it's just a kind of a, a, like a little, uh, uh, a very slight movement, but it's, yeah. a, it's got a very strong intent behind yes. that movement. Yeah, uh, 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 and Timberlake flinches, yeah. uh, and for lack of a better phrase, in that moment looks like a complete pussy. Yes, yeah. And trying to, in front of all his employees, trying to sell it like he's not, Yeah, and it was just a brilliant little moment. Yeah. And so at that point I thought... Maybe Justin Timberlake can act. Yeah, and it, and it, I think that moment is particularly sweet because what he's doing to provoke that response in Saverin is particularly nasty. Yeah, he's really kind of yeah. sticking it in, isn't yeah. he? And, it, and, it, and probably completely unnecessary in all of the... You know, I think it, it's almost like he's, he's thought this would be a good prank joke thing to do just to really wind him up. Yeah. And he provokes that. Yeah, that is really good. Um, I'm going to start by talking about the script particularly. Um Aaron Sorkin's script is I mean it's like one of it's like the top notch episodes of the West Wing yeah you're covering topics that are incredibly dense and incredibly complex he's not using simple language yet you are understanding every step of the way I think that's what he he did so well with the West Wing was writing dialogue where you didn't need to know anything about the way the US government works but you could follow everything. And if you paid attention, you could learn how it exactly, works. Exactly, yeah. As well. Yeah, and I think this is the same. Whether it, whether they're talking about the algorithms and the coding and the creation of the websites mm. or the legal uh, ramifications of what they're doing or, you know, the depositions and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, a, a, a drama based on a series of depositions mm. about who owns the rights to a company should not be this interesting and entertaining. No, good point, yes. I mean, it really is. I mean, if 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 someone pitched that, as if a producer came to a studio and pitched that, you'd think, really? They would they would be escorted by the two burly yeah. security guards they could find to the front gate, I think. Yeah, and I think what really sells it, what really works in the script, is that you're on Mark Zuckerberg's side against the Winklevoss twins. Mm-hmm. So you kind of empathise with his position, you know. Okay, maybe the idea, for, you know, his idea for Facebook was a was a 
inspired by what they came up with. Yeah. But it obviously wasn't a direct copy. He, he didn't take it on. So you're kind of on his side then. But you're also against Mark Zuckerberg because you're on the side of Eduardo Saverin in that storyline. Yeah. I yeah. find. And th- But then there's the difficult point of despite the fact he gives him the initial algorithm, all of the business decisions Saverin makes aren't actually that good. Mm. And if he'd stuck with him, it probably wouldn't have panned out very well. Uh, and then there's Sean Parker, yeah. who comes across the least well, I think, in this film, out of all the major players. Yeah. Because, like you say, he comes across a bit cocky and a bit yeah. noel. But without him, it wouldn't have worked. It would still be called The Facebook. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So it, that's what I found really, really interesting, is how you're how your loyalties shifted and changed throughout the film mm. but never you were never swinging violently from one to the other you were mm. never solely on one person's side and i think that's what made, makes it such an engaging film to watch mm. and i think that's an incredibly fine line to tread to do well and i mean this is an exemplary example of how to do it mm. um i think to some degree like primer you have to be in the right mood uh, to watch this and you have to be very willing to pay attention to watch this. Absolutely. Uh, not to the same degree. I think it's much it's much easier to get into the flow mm. of it. Um, well, this has, to, this has the big budget bells and whistles that Primer yeah. doesn't have that, would, yeah, yeah. that would draw in the average moviegoer, I think. Yes, yeah, yeah I think and it, it did. Um, and I think what gives it that distinction is Fincher. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's given that it's just a series of meetings in rooms and various bits acted out around harvard and california it's mm. a great looking film mm. uh, i mean it, it it's beautifully shot uh, and you lent me the blu-ray for this so the the high definition was absolutely stunning and um i know i've i discovered it was shot on uh the red cameras yeah uh for those people that don't know that you know most feature films shot on 35mm film, or they used to be, and now we've got this whole range of films being shot in a digital medium, and one of the forerunners for camera equipment is a camera called the Red, uh, or the Red One specifically. Um, and it's gorgeous, and I found out that two of the ones that they used on this are actually owned by Steven Soderbergh. Yes. And he lent them to Fincher. Yeah, that's why he gets a thank you in the credits. Yeah. Um, and you can... I have visions of Steven Soderbergh going on holiday using a red one as his personal camera. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I, and I think that uh, the standout sequence in terms of visual style, and particularly Fincher, is, as you mentioned, the Henley Regatta scene with the tilt shift. And the Hall of the Mountain King. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the, uh, I mean, the, the Regatta scene is just absolutely fantastic. Mm. Um, it looked stunning. Um, and I know you put an example of the tilt shift photography up on thing. Yeah. Oh, it'd be worth seeing if we can just find the, the Henley regatta sequence. I'll see I if I can. I'm not sure if it'll be around, but we can have a look. F- that sequence is the first example of full motion tilt shift that I'd seen. Yeah. Because the example I put up, put put up. Yeah. Was um, time lapse. Yes. So it wasn't f- yeah. proper full motion video. It was just a sequence of photographs stitched together. Um, kind of. Because I'm not sure if it was completely time-lapse or if it was just speeded-up footage. It could have been that. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, because as far as I understand it, and I may be wrong on this, that tilt-shift is a completely post-production... No. 
Really? I no. thought it was. No, no. There's a. I will find. I've seen a lens. I will. I will link to it. Right. Okay. This is getting a bit technical and nerdy now. Yeah, I suppose um, it is. Um, it's, it is worth take, checking out the the thing you posted on the blog though for mm. for people who, who don't quite understand what we mean by it. Um, it it's, I'll try and find some further reading and watching for yeah, people absolutely. who are interested by this. Yeah. Technical but, nonsense that we're yeah, babbling about now. It, but it's a, it's a really interesting technique. And the opening titles of the Sherlock TV series. Right. That's all. That's all tilt shift okay. photography. Uh, right. If anybody who hasn't gone to the cinema and can't be bothered pressing buttons on uh, right. on the internet, yeah. uh, uh, the Sherlock TV series, which conveniently has just finished as we're recording yeah. this, uh, the opening title sequence of that is all tilt shift, photog- tilt shift photography. Okay, that's interesting. Because also, I mean, again, this technique you can do completely in post production, and. Uh, <clears throat> If you've got a, a, any various smartphone, uh, you can download apps. So you can take, I mean, I can take a photo on my phone and create the tilt, tilt shift technique. Um, and I've done it several times and it, it comes out pretty well. It's quite fun to play with. But it's, it's, to me, that's one of the standout moments of the movie. So Talking of standout effects, yeah. the twins. Yeah. Now that, again, what I think uh, Fincher does really, really well is special effects that you don't know are special effects he has he seems to have this thing of with every film he sets himself a new technical challenge yeah so it will be the first one he shoots entirely digitally yeah or it will be this twins effect and that kind of thing yeah that will be the first and last time the twins effect is mentioned on this uh, on this podcast because that's a very very bad Hong Kong action <laughs> movie <laughs> anyway sorry carry yeah. on um so I mean, it's, that's one of the things. I mean, the, the twins in this. I, I mean, it's seamless. You, I mean, it, it genuinely looks like it, play, it was played by twins to the point where I think my wife actually thought it was twins until I told her that it was actually t- it was two different people. Mm. Well, it was sort of it's sort of one and seven eighths different. Yeah, people, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. There was there was Army Hammer, and then there was a model from a. a it's a guy a called catalog. Josh Pence. Yeah, that's right. And uh, yeah. That apparently they went to twin school. Yes. And they had like a, a, a six-month masterclass on how to move in the same way and mm. how to interact as twins. And they, they did that throughout the film and then they just put Army Hammer's face on Josh Pence yeah. for, the, for the shots where they're together side by side. I think they also did a bit of split screen. So yeah, there's, there's some split screen stuff and some yeah. motion control stuff. Yeah, so th- there are various ways to create the twins, as mm. it were. But yeah, it's a fantastic performance, not just by Hammer, but also by Josh Pence mm. for matching the movements and that kind of stuff. So yeah, that, I mean, that is absolutely brilliant. There's a, if you get the, the Blu-ray, there's a, a featurette on it, on the second okay. disc. Right. Um, or a, a, Within the long documentary about the making of the film, there's a section on the twins. Right. Uh, and when I watched that for the first time, my jaw just dropped because yeah. I I just thought, oh, it's all it's all split screen. Yeah. But uh, mm. it, yeah, it's really clever. Yeah, I, d- I didn't get a chance to watch any of the special features, but I'd be quite curious to see them. I, no doubt I will pick up the Blu-ray of this at some point because um, I really did enjoy it. Um, there was one thing I did find out when I was researching. There's a there's a scene where. Um, off the cuff, I think it's Mark Zuckerberg mentions that at Harvard at the time there were various people, including a movie star, that went there. I was just reading that exact same bit on my notes. Yeah, yeah. and um, I, it, it turns out that the movie star he was talking about was Natalie Portman, yes, who was at Harvard at the time that all this was going on, and um, she actually hosted a dinner party for Aaron Sorkin uh, with some of her old Harvard mates, and they sat down and just told him stories mm. about what they used to get up to, what you know, the way the school worked, and how people socialized and he used that as quite a, 
an extensive research tool, as mm. it were, to find out and help with the. What a brilliant things. way to research scripts! Go around, to, <laughs> go around to Natalie Portman's house for dinner. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So um, yeah, I thought this was fantastic film. Um, one of Finch's best. Excellent. Well, it appears Tom has clicked like for the social network. Absolutely. Um, I found some people that didn't. Oh, really? Uh, I have a new sex- segment on the podcast that, that may not survive beyond this one week and you know nothing about. Okay. We call it customer feedback. <laughs> right. I went on some uh, some DVD sales website. Oh, really? And found some customer reviews of uh-huh. both of the films we're talking about today. Interesting. Uh, here's some from the social network. Yeah. Um, I don't like Facebook. It's dull. I didn't like this movie. It was dull. <laughs> From the opening five minutes of nonsensical, dull and pointless dialogue to the ridiculous attempts to make nerds like, look like James Bond, this film was a diabolical mess. <laughs> oh dear. Facebook is a phenomenon right. and hugely popular. This film is hugely popular. What does that tell you about the world? I think it tells you more about that person, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> um, this, right, this is one sentence, right. okay? Very poor movie. I've seen it one time. Won't watch it again with an E on the end. Throw most of it had bad music playing in background and could not hear H-E-R-E what they were, W-H-E-R-E, saying, worst movie I've seen in a long time. Amazing. Uh, And there was one more, just one more I wanted to read out. Oh, God. Oh, God, there's several. Damn. Okay, I'm going to do two more. There's two more. Uh, one good, one bad one, mm. and one good one. What, so, someone who gave it one star and someone who gave it five stars. Right, okay. The one star, having just reviewed Black Swan, ugh. <laughs> I thought I'd just stick my oar in to say I don't care how many Oscars this gets or doesn't get direction, screenplay, casting, lighting, or lenses. What do I know? It deserves them all. <laughs> oh, so this is a good one. This must be a good one. Sorry. Right. What's the secret? I guess the conjunction of a supremely intelligent writer, director, and leading man with a dream theme. The pacing is relentless, not a frame is wasted. The establishment shots, is that the phrase? Kept to a minimum. Unlike Black Swan, where at least two-thirds is filler and even the lesbian and masturbation scenes barely kept me awake. (laughs) (laughs) And this final one, this was another five-star review I found. Couldn't believe how good it was. I really can't think of any flaws in this movie. It is amazing. Potential film of the year. Because 18 was very good as well. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) Uh, yeah, no, I, I really did enjoy this. I thought it was a, it is an excellent film, and if you if I think if you're in the mood for a, a a good intelligent drama, then go for this. Really great film. Well, while Tom was watching the Social Network, mm-hmm. I was stretched out on my sofa eating Cadbury's chocolate buttons and smearing them on my nose, judging by the stain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. oh uh, watching Dirty Harry. Yes. Uh, so, Dirty Harry in a nutshell, Tom, go. Okay. Well, Dirty Harry is the archetypal. Uh, cop thriller uh, and he's the it's the tough cop does things by his own rules and I think this was the first time that it was really done to the degree that people have got used to since I think I think basically they, in, they, there have been a few tough cop movies beforehand but Dirty Harry created the benchmark of what they should be um, so what did you think of it? Well, I thought, as you're talking about creating that kind of genre, in that respect, it does feel ahead of its time. Because if you then think of all those kind of action movies of the 80s... Yes, yeah, absolutely. uh, uh, Lethal Weapon wouldn't have happened without this film. Uh, Die Hard Hard wouldn't have happened without this film. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, it kind of feels maybe 
in a sense, 10 to 15 younger years younger than it actually yeah, is. Because this, this was released in 1971. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so it's now 41 years old. Yes. Interestingly, the same age Clint Eastwood was when he made it. Excellent. So that means he's 82. Oh. Oh, Dazzlers with maths, why don't you? <laughs> yeah, sorry. Um, it's hard to say how much I enjoyed it. Okay. I kind of have this... I think I have a problem with kind of classic movies. Right. In that I've seen all the parodies... Yeah. Before I've seen the film. Yes. So I kind of know what it is before I get to it. Right. And I find it hard to be impressed by them. Okay. Because... You've seen it done before. (laughs) I've seen it done before, but also seen it done since. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I know what you mean. Everything has kind of... Everything's kind of moved on. Yes. And I know I'm sounding like a complete moron at the moment, but <laughs> yeah. I can't get the... Th- shut up. I can't <laughs> get kind of the thoughts in the right order in my head. It must be something to do with this microphone. Right. Um, I didn't dislike it at all. Okay. That's it, I, I was just kind of like, oh, great, now I've seen Dirty Harry. Excellent. Yeah. I've been meaning to do that. Okay. But I'm unlikely to go out and buy a copy right. or specifically tune in if it's on TV. Does oh, that make any sense? Yeah, no, I, I see yeah. that, yeah. Uh, but like I said, I don't dislike it as right. much as I may disagree with some of the politics in it because it's a very kind of Republican kind of oh, movie. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I'm looking yeah. at a Republican movie from 1971 through, you know, kind of liberal 21st century no, eyes. Yeah, yeah, I totally um, agree, yeah. So, but as a film, yeah, it's fine. Great. Lovely. Ooh, Although I did, I did feel it kind of reaches its natural conclusion early. Yeah, well, uh, which th- is the football stadium scene. Yes, well, this is the thing that uh, my wife alluded to in her tweet: is that you kind of reach the climax and you suddenly realise it, it's not finished and it kind of carries. Yeah, it's on another half hour to yeah, go. After yeah, that. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. But, but interesting enough, some of the best bits in the film are in that half an hour. I think. I'm trying to remember what happens after. Well, the, for you me, you think I only watched this two days me, ago. Well, for me, one of the standout shots is when uh, the Scorpio has the kids on the bus and they're driving around the corner, and he thinks he's getting away with it. And, and they Harry see on the bridge, bridge yeah. and you see Dirty yeah. Harry, and you think that that's a standout moment of the movie. And then that happens. Well, the, in that the, last the, the very first shot of Clint Eastwood in this film makes him look like a complete badass, anyway. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, like I said, this is Clint's film. Absolutely, one hundred percent. Definitely. Is, what is interesting, though. It was written for John Wayne. Yes, I discovered this as well. And then it was offered to Frank Sinatra, Marlon Brando, Steve McQueen, and Paul Newman. None of them wanted to do it. All of those have been a very different film. Absolutely. Um, And you kind of see Steve McQueen's take on it in Bullet, to some extent. Yeah, I suppose you do. I don't know. Have you seen that all the way through? Or have you just seen I the car chase? Seen, I've seen the car chase. I've seen more than just the car chase, but I can't right. remember if I've ever seen all of it beginning to end in one sitting. Okay, because that is one of my top five favourite films. So I am aware. I may well pitch you that at a later date. Mm-hmm. And we'll talk about the differences between the two then. Um, and it was Paul Newman that suggested Clint Eastwood to the producers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can't imagine anyone being Dirty Harry other than Clint Eastwood. No. I mean, he is that role. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. It's something that seems to come up a lot in these podcasts. Yeah, but this is really well shot. Yeah, the cinematography is fantastic. Mm. And as you said last week, the the Blu-ray transfer is mm. amazing. Yeah, uh, it, really bright colours. Yeah, I mean, because yeah. when you think, if you sorry, if you think seventies cop movie, you yeah. think kind of grainy, grainy, and gritty, nasty, mm. bit cheap. Yeah, but this is this is vibrant, and there are some staggeringly well composed shots Uh, I wrote that down in the first scene where Clint's up on the roof yes uh, uh, going through his uh, procedural machinations yes Uh, that makes it sound like he's doing something (laughs) (laughs) well there's actually there's a uh, we mentioned last week I'm a 
big fan of title sequences. Yeah. And there's a really good website called The Art of the Title Sequence. Yeah. Perhaps they, they, I know they've got the Dirty Harry opening titles on there. So maybe if we can put a link to that. You're just trying to find me more work to do, aren't I you? I am, yeah. But if we can get a link to it, then people can kind of see hmm. that opening sequence. The other thing about the opening is it's nearly six minutes before anybody speaks, apart from the girl who goes, ah, when she gets shot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But and, and all that time, you're 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 introduced to Dirty Harry, mm. you see a murder, you see you know exactly what type of person he is and it and it all climaxes in the moment where with the introduction of the the main killer yeah with the note on the aerial who you see much more of than i was expecting to yes yeah cuz yeah. usually in this kind of cop movie the cop and the killer would be kept apart yes. for the majority of the film yeah. you wouldn't necessarily follow the killer going anywhere or doing anything it'd all be the police department trying to track yeah. him down or you'd see kind of you would only see the killer when he was committing a crime. Yes. But you get to see much more of Scorpio than that in this film. Yeah, you do. And I think I think possibly that might be what the distinction is between things that came before it. I think that might be one of the yeah. things that it kind of pushed. I mean, I know the guy that, that played Scorpio got death threats and people would come up to him in the street and threaten to punch him Yeah, he had to change stuff. his number and all sorts yeah. of things, didn't he? Yeah. I also found out that uh, he's a pacifist and re- just didn't like any of the scenes involving a gun. He had to be sent. He did. They did a couple of days shooting, mm. and then they sent him away for gun training. Yeah. And then he came back and reshot stuff because <laughs> he he was just flinching every time he touched the gun. Yeah, yeah, it's Which interesting. Kind of works within his character, I suppose. It does. Cause he's very nervous and jittery yeah. and on edge and what have you. I mean, one of the things I also like about it is you know, Clint Eastwood does all his own stunts in this film. Yes, including jumping off the bridge onto the top of a moving bus. That sounds more impressive than it actually is because it's yeah. probably a drop of about four feet. Oh yeah, absolutely. But and Clint Eastwood's six foot four. <laughs> yeah, so. yeah. But it's still, you know, it's still onto a, yeah. you know, onto a moving bus and what have you. There's, I mean, there's some great stuff in it. Um, there was going to be a car chase as well, but because Bullet set the benchmark for seminal car chases in San Francisco, in San Francisco, yeah. two year, two or three years prior, mm. they decided to cut it because um, they ju- they just thought we're not going to even try to yeah, top there's that. No, there's no. But point. what is interesting in the in the fifth fourth sequel yeah fourth sequel the fifth mm. film the deadpool there is a car chase in san francisco and it is a brilliant car chase because it's a really clever spin on it mm. and it's dirty harry and his partner in a car being chased by a remote control toy car that's got a bomb on it and Amazing. it sounds ridiculous but it's really really good talking of driving yeah what's with clint eastwood driving around san francisco at night with his lights off really yeah there's a sequence with him and um the partner that they quite racistly called Chico. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, they're, when they're initially driving around looking for looking for Scorpio, right? They're driving around with their lights off. Really? Yeah, I hadn't noticed. That. That's just before he meets Hot Mary, who incidentally yeah. is not that hot. <laughs> no. But thank you for warning me about breasts. That's <laughs> okay. As is becoming a running theme on this show. Yeah, yeah I thought, thought you would want a fair bit of warning with that one, to be honest. Yeah, it was kind of like a th- not even veiled, or a thinly veiled <laughs> no. warning. Just look out for Hot Mary. Yeah. <laughs> Um, one of my favourite scenes is the uh, the sequence where Dirty Harry has to deal with a suicide jumper. Yes, yeah, I like that as well. Um, which is interestingly kind of uh, the, the, the one of the most famous takes on that is Lethal Weapon with um, Mel Gibson 
on yes. the roof and then making the guy jump off onto the yeah. airbag whereas Dirty Harry's theory is just you know, you know don't do it because I don't know I don't want to have to sort through the body parts body parts to find your uh, driver's license yeah and then just punches him yeah. <laughs> knocks him out and grabs him and that's it yeah what's interesting about that scene is the uh, the director was feeling a bit ill and didn't want to get up in the other cherry picker for the director and camera person mm. so Clint directed that whole sequence well, what I found out was they blocked out six days, yeah. six nights to shoot that sequence. Yeah. And Clint went, I can do it in two, yeah. and then did it in one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely, that was, yeah, that was definitely one of my, my favourite bits. Of yeah, the film. from what I've heard about his directing style, since he's very much like that, he'll just do a setup, do a take, got it, done. Yeah. And he's very quick, and he knows exactly what he, he wants. Talking of Eastwood directing, yeah. in the background, earlier on, just before the bank robbery scene, yes. you can see uh, a movie... Uh, theatre billboard for Play Misty for Me yes. which was released the same year yeah, which, starring and directed by Clint Eastwood yeah, it was, that was the first film he ever directed as well I believe it was yeah. um, one of my favourite facts about this film is that in the Philippines a police district ordered copies of the film for a training film yes and they actually used it <laughs> to train their detectives in law enforcement i just had these visions of these filipino cops walking around with these huge magnums strapped <laughs> <to their> legs. <laughs> just amazing that the uh, that bank robbery scene where you where he uses the magnum for the first time and yeah. you get the famous do you feel lucky yeah speech written by john milius oh really yeah uh, john milius and terence malick both took shots at the screenplay right yeah and yeah. a lot of milius's stuff is still in there including the do you feel lucky stuff is all his oh, okay. although albeit slightly tweaked yeah um uh firstly harry and the bank robber yeah the guy he shoots they're yeah. both i didn't realize harry got shot in the leg in that scene because yes. it looks like he just dropped ketchup from his hot dog <laughs> on his leg. Yeah, yeah. And the way he walks, he walks like he just dropped ketchup from his hot dog. They're both very blasé about being shot. <laughs> yeah, they are. But I think that's the thing. I think one of the taglines for this film, I, I'm pro- I might be misquoting this, but I think it's in the trailer. Bullets well. don't hurt. No, it's no? not. Is that uh, talking about the two central characters, is there are, there are, was it there are two killers, there are two killers on the loose in san francisco harry's the one with the badge yeah uh, the implication being they're not that different it's just that harry's on the side of the law and yeah. the other one isn't and there's a, there was another a really really good poster quote as well which i can't remember off the top of my head we'll have to try and find it and tweet it or something like Okey-dokey. that yeah. um the football stadium yes the shot yes that comes from the guy yeah. on the floor harry's Injured, the, uh, stabbed him in the leg, yeah. and chased him into the stadium. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I keep saying the guy, uh, Scorpio. Scorpio, the killer. Um, Harry stabbed him in the leg in a scuffle they've had, uh, and chased him into a football stadium, and chases him halfway across the field, yeah. knocks him down, and kind of stamps on his leg, mm-hmm. uh, stamps on the wound. And as he, when he screams, the camera pulls out mm. from from his face. <laughs> all of the way out of the football stadium yeah. in a helicopter shot. The only thing that gives it away is being a helicopter is you can see like Harry's jacket kind of billowing yeah, and a bit away. Of f- flapping hair. Yeah. yeah. But that's that's an amazing shot. It is. It's absolutely incredible. Yeah. I think that that comes after the sequence of the bag drop where basically Scorpio is extorting money from the mayor and says you've got to uh, you know one one guy has to come with a bag and he goes to a phone box and he's made to run to another phone box and then another phone box and another phone box yeah yeah and um uh, you know rather cynically if that was in a film now everyone would be sitting there thinking well this is the format for the video game where you run around 
It's in the it's in the first Grand Theft Auto. Exactly. The top the original top down Grand yeah. Theft Auto. Yeah. That was a sequence where you had to run from phone yeah. box to phone box. Well what's interesting is in two thousand and seven they developed a Dirty Harry video game. Really? Yeah. Warner Brothers and a co- I don't know what the other company was called, but they developed it. There is a trailer available mm-hmm. and it features the robbery sequence we were just talking about. Uh, it was voiced by Clint Eastwood. It looks amazingly good fun. And then the something happened with the game developer company and they never made it. But they do have a trailer that can, contained representative gameplay footage. Right, you can find that one and put yeah, it in the link. Yeah, I've already it? seen it on, on thing. I'll, I'll, I'll make sure the link goes up because it's fascinating. And I just watch it thinking, I would have loved to have played that game. It looks, I mean, it's, I mean, it looks like it would have been a GTA but Dirty Harry, hmm. which would have been really cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it, it did look really great. I'll, fi- I'll find the link because it's cool. I have uh, I have customer feedback for uh, oh, really? as well. Just the one. All right. Just the one. Yeah. It's quite long, so be- but bear with me. Okay. Clint Eastwood has, over the years, quite cleverly hidden a speech impediment that hampered his early forays into acting. His technique is based on an old French learning, an old French teaching about the linguistic problems experienced by some people, such as Jonathan Ross. Both Clint and Jonathan have difficulty pronouncing the letter W. I think he means R. Yeah. Whereas Rossi just dives on in and has made it a feature of his persona, Clint has used a fleuron approach where the letter is pretty much negated and not pronounced at all. In Dirty Harry, his line about feeling lucky, to the punk, he says, to tell you the tooth. Note tooth, not truth. To most ears, this sounds acceptable and normal, but in all of Clint's films, use of W words is kept to a strict minimum. <laughs> the music in the, the right the complete non secretaire here. <laughs> right. The music in this film is also quite grating, possibly to no. cover for the woeful dialogue. A chap called Lalo Shafter did the music. <laughs> Lalo Shafter did the music. <laughs> and from scant listening, it sounds like the music from a skin flick from the same era. All in all, I cannot see one good thing to recommend this excellent film to others to miss it. <laughs> what? Hold on. <laughs> that makes no sense. Exactly. But hang on, we're not done. Oh, God. The story is entertaining, the, act is, the acting is bad, the special effects are terrible, editing and lighting is adequate given the equipment used, but unforgivable in this day and age of DVDs and MP3s. All in all, I would give this film three stars. Minus two for the reasons above, plus three for Clint's acting, minus two for the title, add three for the music, take one out for the bloke out of Hellraiser being in it, and finally minus two for the use of the floral approach to the 23rd <laughs> sacred letter. Amazing. <laughs> Talking about the music, what did you think of the score? Just out of curiosity, it's fine. Yeah, I really love it. I think it's a really odd. odd it fits with the, the the point of it is it didn't jump out at no, me. No, it really which fits. it shouldn't do. No, but it's it's if you listen to it, it's very unusual. And very yeah, oh, odd, definitely, yeah. But it works perfectly. Yeah, it's, it's it's exactly right for the mm. film. It, uh, yeah. So, I'm as with the film itself. It's fine. I'm not going to go and get the CD and listen to it on my journey into work. You know, you have. Yeah. Um, But yeah, it fits the movie perfectly. Yeah, yeah, no, and you're right. It is is an unusual approach to scoring, to scoring. Yeah, yeah, an A picture. Yeah, well, I think that was Leila Schifrin kind of did that. Um, And when we when we inevitably cover Bullet, I'll talk about how he did the score for that one because that's quite interesting as well. At least I think so. Okie dokie. So, so I guess that's our reviews done. It looks like two thumbs up, pretty much. Uh, yeah, one yeah. big magnum in the air. Yeah, absolutely. And um, what was really interesting, though, is that um, from the moment I knew you hadn't seen Dirty Harry, I knew exactly what film I was going to follow it with. Okay. And I'm t- and I, when I when I mean when we first started, I mean before we even start recording these, and we just had discussions about the podcast. 
and we had an initial list of films, I, I knew, always knew exactly what I was going to pitch you next. Okay. What makes this really interesting is that it's David Fincher's take on the story of Dirty Harry. Aha. Uh-huh. Now, it's not David Fincher's Dirty Harry, which is a shame because I think that would be awesome. That would be an interesting, an interesting movie. Yeah. yeah. In fact, I'd quite like to make it with. I'd love Fincher to make a Dirty Harry film now with Clint Eastwood at eighty-two. <laughs> that, I think that would work so well. Um, Geriatric what, Harry. Yeah, but what we haven't mentioned at all in this episode or last episode is that Dirty Harry is actually based on a true story. Yes. Um, it's not strictly based on a true story, but the idea of a serial killer within that uh, San Francisco area uh, was actually happening at the time it was released and shot and written. Um, and the guy was called the Zodiac Killer, which is hence why our killer was called Scorpio. Um, so I'm going to pitch to you David Fincher's Zodiac. Excellent. Because I've been wanting to see this since before it came out. So basically, Zodiac, based on the true story, uh, it's actually based on the book of one of the people within the story. Mm-hmm. Um, we have the Zodiac Killer, who killed multiple people. I think it was up to about 14 through a, a long period of time. Um, the f- I think the first killing that was attributed to him was in 1969, and the last one was around 72, 73, possibly even 74. Um, so he, 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 he worked for a long time, and he ran the San Francisco police around in absolute circles, or the Californian police around in circles. Um, and he baited them at every step of the way. Yeah, sending them all kinds of cryptic notes. Yeah, and, he, yeah. he would send them... Co- he, he Basically, the first anyone knew about it, he sent three codes and three letters to the three big newspapers in San Francisco saying, print this on your front page or I will kill, um, uh, which he did. Uh, and they printed various bits. And it, it, it's, I, it's very... I mean, it... it it sounds like the plot to a movie. Mm. You'd be surprised that this actually happened. The three main people that investigated it were an, an investigative journalist for the San Francisco Chronicle uh, called Paul Avery, who is played by Robert Downey Jr. There was uh, Inspector Dave to- Toski, or Tosh- Toshki, I'm not quite sure how you pronounce Thank it. Thank you, um, played by Mark Ruffalo, who was the inspiration for Steve McQueen's bullet. Okay. There's even a line in the movie where uh, Jake Gyllenhaal's character says to Robert Downey Jr.'s character, he wears his gun like bullet, and Downey Jr.'s like, bullet got it from Tosky. So okay. um, there's, there's a quite nice little in-joke there. Um, Jake Gyllenhaal plays the third person to investigate it, and he was a cartoonist at the San Francisco Chronicle, but he was also really keen on cryptic crosswords and codes and things like that. And he, he, that that's what drew him into it. Uh, he was called uh, Robert Graysmith, and he was the man that actually wrote the book in the early 90s about the Zodiac killings. What makes this kind of an interesting movie is that it spans a long period of time, from mm-hmm. 1969 all the way up to 1991, you start off seeing the investigation from the newspaper side of things with Paul Avery and Robert Graysmith kind of sticking his nose in where he shouldn't really because he's a cartoonist. It's yeah. got nothing to do with him. And then it kind of segues into the actual police investigation uh, with Mark Ruffalo's character and then 
back to Jake Gyllenhaal, who continued investigating it after the police lost interest is the wrong word but and they they didn't close the file but things petered out yeah um and there was a long period where not much happened and he continued trying to solve the case um i won't lie it's a long film okay it's two and a half hours all right just over i think um it's not as sparklingly scripted as the social network which is a bit of a shame Mm. But it is, I mean, it's a great film. You can't have Sorkin for every movie. Exactly. It's got classic Fincher style. Um, keep your eyes open for the sequence with the yellow cab mm-hmm. um, because that looks brilliant. And again, it looks a bit like GTA. There's a whole top-down view of this taxi that is phenomenally good. And it's such an interesting way to shoot that particular scene. Really good performances from Hall and Robert Downey Jr., particularly together. Which is a, which is one of the fictional aspects of the movie. Uh, Avery and Graysmith never knew really were friends or knew each other that well, but for, okay. the, for the purposes of moving the plot along, they've they've made them interact and work together on certain points. Sure, as you'd expect with Fincher, it's his take on these sort of seventies movies, mm-hmm. um, which you see to a degree. There are some interesting. Uh, interesting shots and stuff like that um, I've already mentioned the yellow cab there's a great time lapse sequence of showing a very large sequence of time passing where uh, the really famous Transamerica building in San Francisco goes from being just a girder box foundation to mm. being the full thing in one time lapse shot which is obviously CGI mm. um, not that you'd know it being david fincher yeah um and, and that that is like you know that's how he shows that a, a year and a bit has passed um so he does things like that and there's a there's, there's another great sequence of you know we've talked before about split screen and all these diopter techniques that people don't use anymore when uh in the 70s you used to get a lot of kind of overlay techniques mm. particularly with text and newspaper headlines and yeah. there's fincher's version of that does at any point a newspaper spin out out at the camera not quite <clears throat> damn no. because it, it always has to be yeah. that in a movie that includes newspapers in any fashion yeah, there has no. to be a spinning newspaper it doesn't quite do that but it's his take on it which works really really well um so i, I think that's all i'm going to talk about okay for it. um but like i say it, it's a really good film it, it I, th- I think it keeps your interest it, and it, i think what you will find interesting is the modern take on the story that you've just seen in harry uh, dirty harry that was also you know you've seen the 70s take on it as it were and now you're seeing the modern take on that previous story good i think you should find that interesting also keep an eye out for the moment that mark ruffalo and jake gyllenhaal meet and how they meet all right because that's particularly cool okay good excellent uh i'm looking forward to that because as i said i've been wanting to i read articles about the making of zodiac while it was being made right uh and wanted to see it before it came out and I'll be damned if I can remember any of it now, but I've also done a bit of reading about the Zodiac case itself. Right. So I'm, I'm for whatever reason, not been able to see this movie for the past, yeah. was it nine years now? Yeah. yeah. So yeah. finally, finally. <laughs> well, I remember the uh, first time I saw it, I think my wife and I rented it, um, and it was quite late. It was like half 11 at night, and we were yeah. like, oh, let's stick a film, and oh, this is a little serious because we've got to take it back or whatever, mm. not realising it was two and a half hours, but still sat there and watched the whole thing. So... Hopefully you'll enjoy it. I'm, I'm really interested to hear your take on it based on what you've previously seen in Dirty Harry. Excellent. Good. Well, I'm about to do something a bit naughty. What? I'm about to break the rules. Oh, no, what? I'm not pitching you a movie. 
What are you pitching me? I'm pitching you a TV show. Really? Yeah. Okay. Because um, it's something, I won't lie, I'd thought about doing this since before we started this show. Okay. This is on my list of fil- of things I think you should see. Okay. Um, and it was brought home to me about a week ago when I signed up for the Netflix trial. Okay. For those unaware, Netflix has launched in the UK finally. Right. Um, online online streaming movie service. Yeah. To rival the one that we occasionally mention yes. on this show. Um, and this kind of just leapt out at me. It's one of my girlfriend's favourite shows, and she showed it to me, and I love it. Okay. It's Arrested Development. I'm not going to make you watch all of it. Okay. I think the first four give a good overview of the characters and the situation mm-hmm. uh, and form a reasonable little arc okay. uh, and also clue you in on some of the uh, the running gags right. that start. Because this is a show built on a lot of running gags and callbacks. Okay. Um, so you'll get to sample some of those mm-hmm. in those first four episodes. Um, the basic setup is I'm pretty much going to read this off uh, something I printed off off the internet because right. try, me trying to sum it up would just end up Fair in enough. disaster. So... George Bluth Sr., patriarch of the Bluth family, is the founder and former CEO of the Bluth Company, which markets and builds mini-mansions, among other activities. His son, Michael, serves as manager of the company and after being passed over for for promotion... That's not easy to say. Maybe I've got the Clint Eastwood thing. (laughs) Um, ...decides to leave both the company and his family. Just as he makes this decision, however, George Sr. is arrested by the Securities and Exchange Commission for defrauding investors and gross spending of the company's money for, quote-unquote, personal expenses. Right. His wife, Lucille, becomes CEO and immediately names the new president as her sheltered youngest son, Buster, who proves ill-equipped as his only experience with business is a class he took concerning 18th century agrarian business. <laughs> right. Furious at being passed over again, Michael secures another job with a rival company and plans on leaving his family behind for good. Realising that they need Michael, the family asks him to come back and run the company, which Michael scoffs at until he sees how much the family means to his teenage son, George Michael. Why? To keep the family together, Michael asks his self-centred twin sister, Lindsay, her husband, Tobias, and their daughter, Maybe, to live together in the Bluth model home with him and George Michael. Right. That's kind of... That's their set-up. The characters. Right. Okay. It's a complicated web... Right. There, there, effectively, there's nine principal characters. Michael Bluth mm-hmm. is played by Jason Bateman, and he's the straight man, the nice guy, good moral values. Um, his son is George Michael Bluth, uh, and that's Michael Sarah. Now, I know you don't like Michael Sarah no. very much, but this is before he became the Michael Sarah that you don't like. Here, okay. he's just a kid with good comic timing. Okay. Is, is he playing that Michael Sarah character that he always is? I don't really know because okay. I haven't seen an awful lot of Michael Sarah stuff, and I don't yeah. mind him. Right? Okay. I've seen I've seen like two or three or maybe four things with him in, sure. and he's absolutely the same in everything. Okay. Well, there's eight other people you can concentrate on if Excellent. you don't like it. That's good. Uh, the the joys of the ensemble cast. Yeah. Um, George Michael is uh, he's a smart, nice kid. Uh, he has his his father's kind of value. Values, not value. That's weird. Like they're both <laughs> worth 250 quid or whatever. Um, uh, but he feels pressured. He feels like he has to live up to his father's expectations. Sometimes those expectations are only in his own head. Uh, there's uh, George Oscar Bluth, which is he's the patriarch, George Sr. That's Jeffrey Tambor. And he's, uh, the, as I said, the dictatorial patriarch. He's in prison. 
for right. all of these things. So there's lots of scenes of going to visit him and that sort of thing. He's excellent. Mm, he usually is good value. There, are, there are three or four standout characters. Right. It's really hard to kind of separate who my favourite character is, but he's definitely in the running. Right. You have his wife, Lucille, played by Jessica Walter, who <laughs> I've written manipulative twice here. So she's very manipulative <laughs> uh, and she's a materialistic lush. Right. I very rarely see her without a drink in her hand. Uh, and she causes a lot of trouble. Um, there's George Oscar Bluth II, mm. uh, which gets shortened to G-O-B, which they pronounce Job, but gets mispronounced as Gob. Right. That's Will Arnett. Okay. He is also in the running for my favourite character. Yeah. Uh, he's, a <laughs> he's a rubbish magician on a Segway. <laughs> right. <laughs> he's macho, charming, stupid, competitive with a non-stop libido. Uh, it sounds like a lot of Will Arnett kind yeah, of he's, thing. Yeah. Uh, he's quite fantastic. Mm. Um, and gets quite a lot of the running jokes, Right, actually. Uh, a lot of them centre around him. Uh, Buster Bluth is a completely socially inept mother's boy. He's been kind of coddled by his mother for years. He's got to be on his way to 40, balding, still living at home with his mother. Right. And he's just effete and completely inept at everything. Right. Um, uh, there's Lindsay, who is Michael's twin sister, as I mentioned. Yeah. Uh, much like her mother, she's materialistic and a bit manipulative, right. uh, but she's coasted on her looks. Okay. Uh, forever. Um, there's her husband, Tobias, who's also in the running for my favourite character, <laughs> right. played by David Cross. Um, uh, yeah. And he's just fantastic. He's uh, closeted, oblivious. Uh, he's a struck-off psychiatrist and wannabe actor. Right. Uh, and he's fantastic. Okay. Um, I've said watch the first four, but mm-hmm. later on, I think, uh, a few episodes later on, there's a scene where he has taken on the challenge of breaking into a blind woman's house to steal back some evidence against his uh, father-in-law. Right. And the scenes of him trying... <laughs> Not to be seen, heard, or smelt by her uh, in her in her house, like inches away from her face, is hysterically funny. Okay. And finally, I guess of the main cast, there's maybe who is Tobias and Lindsay's daughter. Right. Um, she's the complete antithesis of George Michael. She's a rebellious teenager, doesn't do her homework, likes right. skipping school, likes getting in trouble. Yeah. That kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And the, but she and George Michael form this kind of form a kind of bond. Right. Outside of that as well, there's also the narrator. Mm-hmm. Because this, rather than your traditional sitcom, there's no laugh track, it's single camera. It's kind of supposed to be a bit of a documentary. Right, kind of so a, it's all, a bit like Modern Family. But yeah, yeah. yeah it's, kind of, it's all kind of handheld, that sort of thing. You right. occasionally see the boom dip into shot and that kind of thing. Right, okay. And in actual fact, in the third season, they do a whole joke based around the boom dropping into the shot. <laughs> right. Um, the narrator, completely uncredited, is Ron Howard. Right. Because he voiced the pilot initially. Yeah. Uh, and because he's his exec producer, and it was kind mm. of one of the people that came up with the idea for right. this show. Okay. Um, uh, he voiced the pilot, mm-hmm. and they were going to get somebody else to do it, but everybody loved it, so he ended up voicing every episode. Oh, wow. Um, and yeah, he he gets quite a fair bit of comedy as well. Excellent. Um, one of the reasons, or many of the reasons, I think you'll like it, is it encompasses every possible type of comedy. Right. There's sight gags, running jokes, callbacks call forwards so there's a lot of clever foreshadowing okay just tiny subtle things yeah. that you won't know won't realize mean anything until 10 episodes later right um uh 
uh, wordplay, physical comedy, fourth wall breaking. Right. A lot of it's based on misunderstandings of, of ambiguous phrasing. Yeah. Uh, it's very, very clever. Mm-hmm. Um, as well as the kind of getting the hang of the characters and the the kind of the general setup in the first four you will all also get to see a really great recurring supporting character right. played by somebody you will not expect okay you, uh, i've kind of set it up so i guess you'll know them when you see them right but i'm not going to tell you who it is okay. or kind of what the character is fair enough but they're then in for the long haul right okay Talking of the guest stars, you won't. I don't. In the first four, I don't think you get to see any of these. Maybe one. I can't remember. I've. I started. I watched it, and I thought, "Oh, those four. They'd make a great little encapsulated thing for Tom to watch." Yeah. But I've carried on watching. I'm now up to episode seventeen. Right. In two days. Okay. I just, it's one of those things I put on, and yeah. I have to watch. Fair enough. I have to keep going. Um, I'm going to kind of uh, uh, segue sideways from that. At the end of each episode, there's a next time on Arrested Development, right? which very often bears absolutely no resemblance <laughs> to anything that happens in the next episode. It's right. just a way of continuing a gag from earlier in the show. Fine. Sometimes they do, right. and sometimes they don't. not so much. Right. Between the pilot and episode two, this just kind of reminds me, I'm kind of segueing from... Segway is not the right word. What am no. I talking about? Tangentizing? Yeah, cool. All right. A tangent from my tangent yeah. is the pilot was quite obviously shot quite some time before yeah. episode two. So they make, in the next time, at the end of episode one, they make reference and show a character who will show up briefly in episode two. Right. Episode two is played by someone completely different. Right. <laughs> and actually, uh, some of the supporting cast, mm. some of the supporting characters were played by two different people. Right. Uh, later on, uh, George Michael gets a girlfriend yeah. who is played by two, possibly three actresses over the life of the show. Right. Um, uh, okay. Uh, Job's girlfriend yeah. in season one is played by two different people. <laughs> okay. Uh, in in different episodes, and I don't. I, it's kind of. I'm not. I'm never sure if that's kind of like a meta running joke. Yeah. Like part of the fourth wall stuff. So like yeah. it really doesn't or just matter. Bad scheduling. Or just, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> But anyway, uh, I was, I was going to talk about guest stars. Recurrent yeah. guest stars include uh, people like Scott Bio, right. Ed Begley Jr., yeah. Zach Braff, Julia Louise, Julia Louise Dreyfus, yeah. James Lipton, Jane Lynch, Ben Stiller, Charlize Theron, Carl Weathers, and Henry Winkler. Henry Winkler awesome. is excellent, and so is Carl Weathers. Carl Weathers plays a version of himself. <laughs> right. He's really, really funny. Cool. And there's a bunch of people who came in for one shots like Heather, Heather Graham, Dan Castellaneta, Gary Cole, Thomas Jane, Andy Sandberg, J.K. Simmons, Martin Short. Well, cool. Later on, I'm trying to hook you so you watch more <laughs> episodes, really, because I think um, this it's a really, really good show. Um, it, it won six Emmys right. uh, in its first two seasons, and mm-hmm. then was completely ignored for the third for no apparent reason. Right. Um, supposedly, there are ten new episodes coming in preparation for an upcoming th- feature film. Yeah, because I, I follow Ron Howard on Twitter, and there's yeah. people are always saying, "When's the Arrested Development movie coming? When's it coming?" So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see. You know, I've heard loads about it and never, just never got around to watching it or, you know, had access to the DVDs or telly it, or whatever. So. It was the same with me until my yeah. girlfriend showed it to me. And yeah. I think we watched... We probably watched all three seasons in the space of a month. Wow. Um, yeah. Oh, you cool. just put it on and can't... Yeah. Because, because the jokes run and run. Yeah. And it becomes one 
it's essentially one long, complicated, convoluted plot. Yeah. And there are very few duff episodes. Right. I will oh, say the good. reason I suggested doing four is because I don't think f- episode five is very good. Right. But then it picks up after that. Fine. And okay. there's a whole section in season three that's just rubbish. Right. Um, but... Uh, so over, uh, TV shows do that, yeah, you know. It keeps, uh, it keeps a, a very... The ratio yeah. of good to crap is very, very good. Okay. Right. So... That's my rubbish rambling pitch. Okay. Uh, I'm nervous that you're going to hit me because I've broken the rules of our show at right. episodes in. Yeah. So uh, it might be time for us to wrap up and go home. Fair enough. Okay. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing that and uh, getting into a few episodes. See how it goes. Good. Um, well, like I say, we should finish off. So, as we always say, follow us on Twitter at HYS Podcast and please do tweet us any reviews of anything you've seen, whether it's, you know, It Man from episode one or something we have pitched but not even reviewed yet. Just send in whatever you've got. And, absolutely. Uh, and also any suggestions you might have. Absolutely, as well. yeah, yeah. And you can do that, like I say, via Twitter uh, or Facebook, um, facebook.com forward slash have you seen podcast. Um, and then there's the blog, bit.ly forward slash HYS podcast I mean you can comment on any of the posts that we put up there um, it'd be interesting to see if, if you know if people look at the links we put up and see if people enjoy them find them interesting um, or if I'm just wasting my time every week yeah absolutely uh, and also you can email us um, at hyspodcast at gmail.com I always read that as HYS podcast <laughs> I can't help it <laughs> HYS podcast at gmail.com <laughs> Uh, we should probably also say some thank yous, as usual, to Upbeat Productions for the use of their studio, mm-hmm. which is uh, warm and comfortable and a brilliant place to come and shoot anything you might want to shoot yeah. uh, <laughs> or, or record any podcast you might want to record. Uh, Chapter Media for all their technical assistance uh, and mostly for his technical assistance, Alexia Mum, who, as we say every week, is the conduit from our mouths to your ears yes that sounds really wrong and I think that's a perfect time to say (laughs) goodbye absolutely bye Mm, yes bye